Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Uh, good. Let me give you some kind of pattern to the day, because some of us like pattern and others don't. I do, so just in case you do as well, let me give you some order to the talks I'll be dealing with. Uh, so if you turn to uh, the first page inside the cover, you've got an outline there of a talk at 11 o'clock, which is now 11.30, uh, and a talk at 3.30. Uh, that will be 3.30, because England played France at 5, so that will be 3.30. Uh, and then some seminars which Pete will talk you through when I've finished. Now, uh, if you um, flip over the page, let me give you the, the way I'm going to try and approach the two sessions I've got. Um, session one I've called The Heart of the Cross. And uh, that has two pages uh, for notes. I'm going to take a verse, uh, 1 Peter 3.18, that says, Christ died for sins. So you see it there at the top. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. It's 1 Peter 3.18. And I'm just going to unpack that verse. So in the first session, I'm going to try and make two things clear, and I'll start formally in a moment. First, the cross brings persecution. Uh, If you're a Christian and you actually trust the cross of Christ, you will not go through your life. You will not go through your life without people being against you. You can't. And I'll try and show you that briefly. This isn't a game. We don't meet for a little game, a religious game. The the cross is something you take up and it costs Christ his life. And it will cost us, in many ways, our own. Beautifully so. I'll pick up on that in just a moment. And then turn over the page. I'm going to try and drive in in a couple of minutes' time when I start. Something that is non-negotiable. So I won't talk about it now. I'll just tell you we're doing it in a minute. Penal substitution. Jesus was punished. God was angry at the cross. And if we don't get that, we'll never get how amazing a thing God has done for us. And I'm going to really drive that home just by looking for about half an hour at Isaiah 53, which will be almost like a sermon, therefore, for this morning. That's where we'll be this morning. This afternoon, flick over a page. In the plenary session, we'll then be very different to that. John Stott did this little book here, which I put in the bibliography. It's been reprinted a number of times since the edition I've shown you. Uh, That shows my age. Uh, Each generation, they say, writes one brilliant book on the cross. Um, Stott has lasted beyond his generation. He died uh, as a very old guy recently. Uh, I've used this as a book uh, so that if you really wanted to follow it through, I'd just put one book. It's worth getting hold of and putting in your library for life. He says, like a beautiful diamond, the cross has many facets. You can look at the cross and you see this image and that image and that image of what Christ has done in dying to take our punishment. And we will look at, we may, I don't think we'll get through all of them, but I've put some of the pictures there. You can view the cross through the eyes of the temple or the law court or the marketplace or the home or a battle or the hospital. I hope this afternoon when you're most tired should be quite fresh. Because it will give you something to grip onto to say, that's a picture of the cross. And you'll see hymns, you know. And you'll see a hymn and you'll read a line and you'll go, that adoption, adoption, that's a picture of me being welcomed home. Free from slavery, that's a picture of the marketplace where saves were bought. And you'll see things in words and readings and songs that will just be what you need at the right time. If you get these images clear. So that's the way I'm going to try and work through the plenary sessions. That may not help you at all, 
but for some of you like to think, right, where's he going with this? Right, here we go then, are we ready to go? Let's crack on at it. The heart of the cross. This is our first session this morning. Christ died for sins. If we're going to consider the cross, we must see it in the context of persecution. Today, on this day in June, on BBC News Africa this morning, the Archbishop of Nigeria, called Ben Kwashi, who's been here to England to speak at a conference called New Word Alive, uh, he was a spokesperson because people have been killed and their houses and churches smashed in just yesterday in Nigeria. If you hear his story, he's been beaten and left for dead and survived and so of his family. We live in a liberal democracy if you live here right now in England. The odds of you getting beaten up and your church burned down are small if you happen to live here. But make no mistakes, the cross is talked about in the New Testament, always talked about in the context of persecution. We cannot afford to be over familiar with the cross. The Lord Jesus says to his disciples in Mark 8.34, If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The cross is a mark of death. It's the mark of foolishness. It's the mark of a criminal and of an outcast. And it is marvellous to be here with you this morning at the end of term when it's been really, really full on exams for many people and you're saying, do you know what? I'm going to spend a day looking at the cross of Christ. If anyone is going to be a radical in the city of Sheffield or wherever you end up living post-Sheffield, you could well be that person. Because you say, do you know what? It costs a small thing. It costs me a day. But you know what? I'm going to go for that day because I want to know more about what Christ has done for me. Hopefully so that I can grow and that I can pass that on to other people and make a difference in this world that needs a saviour. Let me read with you 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 to 18. So just have a look for that in the Bibles that you have in front of you. 1 Peter 3 verses 13 to 18. Peter has written to a persecuted group of Christians from a wide-ranging area, geographical area. They're under the cosh, they're under threat for their faith. And in verse 18 he says, Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. However, look at the context in which verse 18 shows up. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened of your persecutors. In your hearts, set Christ apart as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Our hope as a result of today 
when somebody has a go at you if you're a Christian, that you will have enough confidence to talk about the heart of the Christian faith, the cross of Christ. That you won't get tense and uptight and bite because you don't quite know what to say. But that you'll have some tools, clear, thought-through tools to say, hey, I know you might be angry about the cross of Jesus, angry about my faith. But, but look, let's think about it this way. Let's look at this picture of the cross. Let's see what Jesus did on that cross. To be able to hold your own in a world which is sceptical and angry about Jesus is the most marvellous thing. And it will be tough, but let's furnish ourselves with clarity so that we can be gentle and respectful. Because as we come to the idea that we're looking at as the main idea in this first session now, we've looked at the fact that persecution goes with a cross if you stand on it. I want to really drive home on that now by looking in a moment at Isaiah 53. If you want to define exactly what happened at the cross, you must talk about penal substitution. It's not a phrase that's found like that in the Bible, so I'm going to unpack it for you today in this first session. If I was in Cairo now giving a talk, well, my life would be at risk if I was proselytizing in Cairo, of course. But if I was talking to Muslim friends in Cambridge or I was in Cairo and I said, oh, yeah, look at the hymns we've just sung, the songs we've just sung. See, what happened when Jesus came was that Jesus was God. God became a man and he was killed on a cross, smashed to bits. That would be so abhorrent, Muslim friends in the room, people who've come from a Muslim background, to an orthodox Muslim that is so disgusting. It is so disgusting that it would make you sick to the stomach. One, that God could become a man. And two, that the one God would not just become a man, but would suffer at the hands of human beings, is such an abhorrent and disgusting idea, so disrespectful to God, that anyone who holds it should be thrown out of court at best at all times. To a Jewish friend in Cambridge, to say, yeah, you see, we're going to look at the fact that God, Yahweh, had to become a man and live among us and die on a cursed cross to save the world. A Jewish friend will say, don't be ridiculous. God does not become human. He has prophets, he has representatives, but he doesn't become human himself. And the very notion that a God, who is the creator of all, could die away with you, you fool. And to the secular thinker, often masquerading in Christianity over the last two or three hundred years, Yes, Jesus is a marvellous model. He's a marvellous picture of God. He, he represents God so beautifully. If only we saw how much God loves us through Jesus, then we could all see how loving and kind and marvellous God is. But you say to somebody who's an overt atheist, or to somebody who's very, very liberal in their understanding of Christianity, ask this question. Did God himself come into the world to be a substitute for the punishment of his own holy anger at the filthy sin in our minds and hearts 
And did he die on a cross to pay the penalty that you and I deserve or we will be judged by him unless our substitute takes our place and we trust him? We cannot have a clean, holy, righteous relationship, a not guilty relationship with the creator of the universe. And many people who even call themselves a Christian would say, oh no, no, that's so primitive. I mean, that is not the way to think about Christianity at all. You're taking primitive Old Testament notions and calling them New Testament faith. You mention a penalty. You mention wrath. You mention God's anger demanding a substitute, which was Christ crucified. And you will have gone too far for many people who have even become leaders in the Christian church in the last 200 years. So we're not playing games here. And hey, I'm just a guy who's come to try and unpack some of the ideas. Your job as grown thinking people is to take anything you hear in a seminar or in a plenary talk today and say, I'm going to really wrestle with this for myself. Because it's the Bible that is the word of God and no human speaker who has the authority over it. So I posit these ideas to you, believing them to be the Bible's teaching, but urging you to bottom them out and to grasp them clearly for yourself. Let's open our Bibles. On the, on the Bible in front of you, if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, the Seat Bibles is page 770. And I'm going to take you for the rest of this session through probably the most famous... Oh, no, it's not. I've got, I had a different Bible just now. Forgive me. It's Isaiah, chapter 53. I thought the Bibles were all the same number, and they're not. Isaiah 740, thank you. Page 740. Isaiah, chapter 52 to 53. I'm going to spend uh, the next uh, 30 minutes after lunch taking you through this passage uh, in order to really get it, uh, really get it, I'd like you to keep your finger in there and turn to Mark chapter 8. Sorry, Acts chapter, <laughs> Acts chapter 8. I'll get the verses right in a minute. Acts chapter 8. I'm going to look at Isaiah 52 to 53, and it's the most famous prophecy of Jesus in the Old Testament. Of the 12 verses in Isaiah 53 that we look at, eight of the verses of Isaiah 53 are quoted in full in the New Testament. Eight of them, all pointing to Jesus. Let me choose a famous example and read it with you. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. 
so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture, Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. The New Testament takes this passage on page 740 and eight times unpacks it to explain from something that happened 600 years before Jesus exactly what the good news was. And you'll find as you read it with me now that the good news is astonishing. And if you find yourself complacent, you're going, well, is this guy giving us a talk on Isaiah 53? Great. What time's lunch again? I want to urge you to think like a Muslim friend would when you hear this passage. I'd like to urge you to think like a Jewish friend would. I'd like to urge you to think like a modern, western, liberal, atheist would. And say, what a disgusting notion you have of the cross. Don't be so utterly, abhorrently primitive. You make me sick, people like you. If there's a God at all, he's got to be a God of love, not of wrath. And if you don't find yourself amazed as we read this passage saying, did God really do this for us? As I'm afraid I'm not often when I was preparing it. We need to ask God to give us the awesome amazement that as a philosopher and as an undergraduate, I'd be reading something like this with my peers in philosophy of religion and saying, what a disgusting notion, primitive punishment of God, sacrifice for us. For goodness sake, these Christians are morons. That's why there's persecution. Because it is absurd unless you see the wisdom of revelation from it heaven itself and what love happens here come on let's dive in on it let's start at 52 verses 13 to 15 if you're a note taker I've called this the mystery of the servant's exaltation and suffering the mystery of the servant's exaltation and suffering verse 13 see my this is God speaking by the way see my servant will act wisely he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. This is the mystery of the servant of God, as he's called by Isaiah, both massively exalted and lifted up and suffering at the same time. No wonder Philip said, let me explain Jesus to you from Isaiah. There you see in verse 13, God says, my servant will come and he will be wise and exalted. But 
Verse 14, people will think he's appalling, disfigured, marred beyond likeness. Can you see why the New Testament looks back to this? The exalted God, marred, smashed, beaten, killed. How could this be a king? Why would he be punished like that? Verse 15, but because of it, he will sprinkle many nations and kings. Kings, Gentile kings, not just Israel. Kings and nations will shut their mouths because of him. Because what they were not told, they will see. What they've not heard, they'll understand. The Bible says that one day, every king will bow his knee. Every person will bow his knee to Jesus. God who became a man, who is king and who suffers. Somebody's got to suffer. And if somebody doesn't suffer, we're guilty. And God loves us so much that he suffered. Every single rubbish, disgusting, poxy thing that I've done this week that I would never tell you. Every moronic, shocking thought that I've had, God knows about. And he is holy and perfect and he hates sin. And yet because of Jesus, I stand here clean, not guilty, innocent, perfectly acceptable. Because the servant suffered, though he was king. And even today, as we are in Sheffield on a June morning in 2012, all the nations have heard about Jesus. At this point, this prophet was writing just to Israel in exile in Babylon in the 6th century. Here we are, look in Sheffield. And we know about Jesus. I mean, he never travelled anywhere, he never went anywhere. He was never on the telly. He never did a podcast. He never wrote a, his own autobiography. And we're in this room going, Jesus saved me. Did this prophecy come true? It came true 600 years later. And 2,000 years after, all the nations know about him. Why? Because the king of the universe was willing to suffer... And you know in your heart of hearts if you know him. You may be very expressive with your body when you sing, for example. You may not be. Pretty incidental to this. Your heart says, Jesus. You know when it's really grim? When it's really grim? Somewhere inside you go, Jesus. And when it's really great, something inside you goes, Jesus. 2,500 years after these words. 2,000 years after a king dies on a cross, do you know what you were liberated from? Guilt and judgment. Liberation because of a sacrifice to take the penalty that I deserve. And as we go into chapter 53, we will see the revelation of the servant's suffering in verses 1 to 9. 53, 1 to 9. What is the revelation of this servant's suffering? And now the gentle kings of the nations are speaking, not God. <clears throat> Let me read it in parts to you. Verses 1 to 3. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? <laughs> Who could believe that God would become a man? Every Muslim believer on the planet can't. 
Every Jewish person can't. Every atheist won't. A, there's no God for the atheist. B, for the theist, for the monotheist. God become a man. Don't be absurd. Suffer. Ha! Who has believed this message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's got to be revealed. You'll never get it by logic. Never. How is it revealed? Well, first of all, look at this prophecy of Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So once more we're told, when this great one from God will come, he will not be obvious. In fact, it'll be pretty unattractive. When Jesus goes to the cross, they say, <laughs> if you're the son of God, get off. Go on, get off. Listen, you're just a carpenter, mate. And you're a bit of an idiot because you're on a cross now, aren't you? <laughs> Saviour, Messiah, get off that cross, son. Oh, he had nothing to attract us to him. And today it's the same, isn't it? I mean, if you know Jesus this morning, how many times has your heart sunk to your boots when you say to your family or a friend, but haven't you thought what Jesus has done for you? And it's just like that, isn't it? it it's polite sometimes, sometimes rude, but basically... Uh, uh, as long as you're happy, it's fine. And you want to say, no, no, no. Can't you see him? Can't you see him for who he is? God has to open our eyes. But we who know him have to tell. Because if you look with me, it's verses 7 to 9. And then we'll go back into the center of it. Look what happens to him as he moves towards death. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. He was legged like a lamb to the slaughter... And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. But who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. For he had done no violence, nor any deceit found in his mouth. He was killed and yet, who will number his descendants? Who can count it? Look, he went with clarity. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't open his mouth twice. He was a lamb. John says, behold the lamb of God who takes the sin of the world away. In the great festival of Passover, every year, the Jewish people would sacrifice a lamb. Jesus dies at Passover in memory of the lamb that is slain when they leave the nation of Egypt. And a lamb and its blood is painted on the doorposts. And the New Testament says, the lamb of God. And Isaiah says, he was a lamb who would die. And he knew it. And he kept his mouth shut. Why on earth does God do this? It's not enough, ladies and gentlemen, just to sing songs without thinking about them. We must think about them, and they're well chosen this morning. They've been thought through. It's not enough to hear talks from people. You must take responsibility 
to take up your cross, to trust in Christ, to be his ambassador, as we look at this afternoon. Don't leave it to some other person to have thought through the absolute bedrock of what Jesus has done so that you can explain it, so that you can tell the truth to anyone who asks, so that the power of the Word of God in the Spirit of God can touch our nations represented here. Because at the heart of verses 1 to 9, in verses 4 to 6, we read this. Surely he took up our infirmities. Listen to the hours, hours and we's. Have a look at it if you would. Our and we. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God. Smitten by God, afflicted by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Do you hear it? It's up for us. He wasn't born unspectacular because he was unspectacular. He was born unspectacular for us. In 79, when he voluntarily shuts his mouth and goes to death on a Roman cross, he didn't do it because he's a loser. He's the king. He actually threw stars into space. No, he went for us. No, 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 no. For you. You put him there. You put him there. He chose to come out of love. I put him there. How disgusting is that? Listen to it raw. Forget coming to church regularly if you come to church a lot. Forget it for a minute. Listen to this. Think of your friend or you if you wouldn't say I'm definitely a Christian. And I turn to you and I say with well, the Bible's mandate. Now you might not put it quite like this. It's not quite the way to introduce conversation easily. But you might say no. He was mad and ordinary and ugly and smashed and mullered to death. No, not because, no, he was the king of the universe. Uh, well, why did he do it then? For you. Because you're disgusting to God by the way you think and live. Will that ever be popular as a message? Can it ever be popular as a message? Can you ever say, hey, come and join the Christian crowd because we've got such a great time going on here. We have. Come and be a Christian because the purpose and the hope it gives you in life is magnificent. It is. Come and enjoy the community of believers and the support for each other in life and death and ups and downs and exams and failures and successes, our relationships in life. Come and join this church. It'll be brilliant. It can be. But right underneath it all, right underneath it all, is a king who says, I've got to punish you because I am so perfectly holy, I define it, and I must spread away from evil, and I must punish it, I can't, otherwise I'm not consistent with who I am as the creator of the universe. The only hope is that I come for you. And that I take your infirmities, and I take your sorrows, and I get stricken by God, and I get smitten, and I get afflicted, and I get pierced. Goodness me! Stop! No! He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. 
God, that is disgusting. And I really want you to get it. I wish I could get it better myself. It's disgusting. It's disgusting on every level to human vanity. It's disgusting first that God, to some people, it's disgusting that God could be angry at sin. And that's not God's job to be angry, it's to be nice. That's disgusting to some. Disgusting to others is that God would come into the world outrageous. Disgusting to others, how dare you say that God would judge me? Listen, I'm not a child molester. Or more commonly, I'm not as good as him, but I'm not as bad as her. Listen, I don't need somebody to die for me, thank you very much. What kind of religion is this? Making us feel wretched. See, even as I say it, I can see your faces. And it's not attractive unless something inside you says, and this is how God reveals himself to us, unless something inside us says, I need help. Now come with me. I need help. And once it drops that the help we need is somebody to pay the penalty for our sin in our place, then the logic follows fast. And we look at it this afternoon in the plenary. I'm innocent. I'm free. I'm not guilty. I'm not dirty to God. I'm not enslaved by sin. I have a relationship with God. All his love can be given to me because his wrath is taken away. I'm going to meet him again. There'll be no final day judgment sending to hell and partition from him anymore. I can enter his hospital and be cared for by him when I hurt. When the fight's on to live for him, I can win battles in his name. All these things follow from this core truth. But the woman or man who won't say, he had to die for my sin in my place, does not understand Christianity. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it is not Christianity if it doesn't start there. There had to be a penalty. So, when Philip talks to the Ethiopian visitor to Jerusalem who's going back to Ethiopia, and the guy's reading this passage, he says, what's it about? Is it about the prophet? Is it about somebody else? He says, oh, it's about Jesus. Let me tell you, he's just gone back to heaven. I'll tell you all about him. That's the early message of the Christian church. And it still is. Let's come to the last few verses of this passage. It's almost like a sandwich. I'm not trying to be funny or clever. Uh, Hebrew poetry isn't necessarily like Western-style poetry. So we'd like, like a poem, write a poem or a hymn, and it would be linear. You go from first verse to fifth verse, and you get to the climax of it kind of thing. The last verse is the hitter. Uh, in, in poetry written in the Old Testament, 
it's, it's kind of more like a sandwich. This is a rubbish analogy. But you've got like two bits of bread. And in the middle you've got the filling. And you could have you know, two bits of lettuce and then the meat. But the centerpiece of the poem is the main hitter. So in this poem we've started with God saying, I have a servant and he's exalted. But he'll suffer. And at the end, in a moment, we'll see God saying, So my servant will be exalted. Two bits of bread. But in the middle, you've got the meat of it. And in chapter 53, verses 4 to 6, we saw that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It was our punishment. He was the one that went for us. That's the real middle of this poem. So as we come out of the poem, if you like, and finish it off, verses 10 to 12 say this he draws it out it was the Lord's will to crush him to cause him to suffer and though the Lord makes him's life a guilt offering that's an Old Testament picture for an animal dying for sin and guilt in the temple look what it says here God's servant will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. I've called that last little bit the exaltation of the, of the servant through sacrifice, verses 10 to 12. The exaltation of the servant through sacrifice. So let me draw us in and go for lunch. I've said in Isaiah, in 52, 13 to 15, there's a mystery about the servant's exaltation and suffering. And then in the middle, at the heart of this, in 53, 1 to 9, we get the revelation of the servant's suffering. And why he had to suffer. And then in 10 to 12, the exaltation of the servant through his sacrifice. It was God's will to do it, but the Lord's will will prosper in his hand, verse 10. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will justify many by bearing their iniquities. He'll get a portion among the great. He'll divide the spoils with the strong because he poured his life out unto death and was numbered with the transgressions. Jesus is king of the universe. He smashed death to bits and he's alive again today. And one day he will return and everybody, all kings, all nations, all people will stand before him. And do you know on that day, it's absolutely clear as the Bible draws to a close, it's absolutely clear that the revelation that people may not get in this life. Verse 15 of chapter 52. He will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him because what they weren't told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. A day will come when everybody you know and you will meet the king. And you'll meet him and you'll look at him and the scars that his resurrection body exhibited when a boy called Thomas had to see the hole. The king who was a servant will look at you 
And he will say, did you believe that I paid your punishment in your place on a cross? And that I smashed death to bits and that I'm the king of the universe and here you are now. Now, I don't know because, of course, we can't see it, but I fancy myself, I'm sad to say on that day, saying, when my eyes open and I see him, I'll go, oh, God, it's true. I'm sorry to say, I'll probably end up doing that. Oh, it's actually true. Because you can't see anything now, right? It's faith, right? And I wait for a day when I go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I stayed in there. I did, I did, I know there were times when it was absolutely pants and I didn't think I'd make it, you know. But you held on to me. <laughs> you loved me so much you came to die for me and then you held on to me because I became yours and you poured out your spirit into me and you kept me going in the down times and you kept me modest in the few big times, high times. And I'm home. But on that day, and this is what we cannot lose if we're going to be God's people. On that day, those who will not receive the suffering servant as the substitute who took the penalty for the sin that is in them and makes them guilty before a righteous God will pay the penalty themselves. That means I have people who I know and love more than any human beings in the world who will face him on that day. Right now, it could be you. It could be some of your closest pals who are hearing me say that there will be, it's appointed for everyone to die once and after that to face judgment, Hebrews 9.27, and we will face the king who died in our place. And he'll say, why didn't you accept my substitution in your place for the judgment. Away from me, you evildoer. And the Bible says it's the absence of God for eternity called hell. So I have two minutes to play with, and let me draw this to a close. Turn back with me to Acts 8 and let's just read the last couple of lines of that story. Acts chapter 8, verse one, one, uh, chapter, um, page 1102. So we've heard that the guy is going back to Ethiopia. He's reading the passage in Isaiah. He's saying, what's that all about? Can anyone explain it? And the Holy Spirit sends Philip alongside him. Philip goes, let me in. I'm tired of running alongside this chariot. Give us a seat, pal. He jumps in. He said, yeah, it's about Jesus. We're all talking about it. We were in Jerusalem. He got, you see what happened is they crucified him. They killed him. But uh, Isaiah talked about it. He said, Isaiah prophesied it. He'd be punished for us. What? God became a man. Yeah, he became a man. What? God himself. Yeah, yeah. And what did he do? Well, he died. Why did he die? Well, he died because he was like a sheep. You see, he had to be a sacrifice. Like a lamb before a shearer and his silence. He knew he had to sacrifice and he, did, he just took it. He was proactive. He didn't open his mouth. He was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? He took our punishment. And the bloke, you know, who knows how long this journey lasted. But the bloke's got the gospel. And something in this bloke said, 
I need somebody to be my substitute to take my punishment before a just God. Has Jesus done it for me? Look how the story ends. Verse 36. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? They stopped the chariot and both Philip and the eunuch went into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at the Zotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. They went on their way doing what? You see that? What did, he, what did he go on his way doing? He's absolutely buzzing. And here's the thing I wish, I wish, I wish God in his lovely power would do in me. Let me rejoice at the cross. Let me rejoice at what he's done for me. And let me go on my way telling others about what he's done for them. Without this crux, nothing else fits. This is the gospel. Peter will come and tell us what's happening after lunch with the seminar so you can explore some different aspects. And then later on, I'll come back and I'll take some images of the cross, like release from slavery, like regaining a friendship with God. And we really pin down what this means in day-to-day living for you and me when the chips are really down and how our hearts can rejoice in the work of the cross. And we'll pick up on some of that plenary later on. So I pray for us, and uh, Peter, lead us into lunchtime. Thanks, Lord, for this passage. Thanks for the brilliance of people like John Stott in his own generation, and uh, those who have written so beautifully in explaining what the Bible's teaching is for people like us to get a handle on the heart of the Scriptures. Pray for my friends, uh, brothers and sisters, I pray for myself, that the the thinking and reading and talking that we may need to do to get these things absolutely clear so that joy follows may be a reality for us. We ask it in Jesus' name.